Welcome to the podcast from Gateway Baptist Church. You're listening to a message from our Ormo campus. Find us at gatewaybaptist.com.au if you'd like to connect with us as we seek to change lives by following Jesus in our community, our nation and our world. When you go to English class at school, one of the first things they wanna talk to you about is your introduction and your conclusion. If you're writing an essay, if you're writing a book, anything you're writing, some of the key points to get right are your introduction and your conclusion. All the bits in the middle are important as well, but if you nail how you start and you nail how you end, it says something about your story. Like you don't wanna leave a story hanging. You don't wanna leave a story with unanswered questions. You wanna, in your conclusion, help people understand the journey that that story was meant to land in. Now, when we open the book of Exodus, we read it in the context of a whole bunch of different books that have been back-ended together. But if we look at it as an individual book in the Bible, let's ask ourselves the question of what was the conclusion of the story that the writer wanted to tell us? Where was the journey heading? Let me remind you of where we started in the book of Exodus, in Exodus chapter one. It says this, so they put slave masters, that's the Egyptians put slave masters over the people, the Israelites, to oppress them with forced labour. And they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labour in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their hands, uh, in all their harsh labour, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. In other words, in the introduction to the story of Exodus, the author wants to let us know the reality for the Israelite people. And the reality was slavery. So this is a story about what God does with a bunch of people that are living in slavery. Now, if we ask the question of where would the conclusion of the book of Exodus be? You'd think, well, surely it's the moment that God moves them out of slavery. You know, the Red Sea moment, you know, when the people walk out, there's all these plagues that have happened and the Pharaoh uh, originally agrees to let them go and they march out of Egypt, but Pharaoh and his troops pursue them. And then God, through his person, Moses, spreads the waters of the sea and they walk through to dry land and to freedom. Surely that would be a great conclusion to the story, but that's not the conclusion to the story. And then they get into the desert and God does some really cool stuff in the desert and providing for them and looking out for them. And they get to the Mount Sinai where last week we talked about how God bought the law. And the way we talk about the law and the Ten Commandments and the, the way that God structured the community, maybe that would be a great conclusion to the book of Exodus. Is that where the journey ends? With the giving of the law? Although the journey doesn't end with the giving of the law. Maybe in our understanding of what God promised the people of Israel, He said to them, I'm gonna lead you out of Egypt into a promised land. Maybe the promised land becomes the end to the book of Exodus, but it doesn't. What becomes the conclusion to the story of Exodus as we find it in the Scriptures? Let me read you the last few verses from Exodus chapter 40. It says this, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Tabernacle was a physical structure that as you read through the book of Exodus, that God instructed them to build. And Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. 
In all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day that it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day and fire was in the cloud by night in the sight of all the Israelites during all their travels. What's this all stuff about cloud and fire and sitting over the tabernacle? You know where the, the writer to Exodus concludes the story? Concludes it with the presence of God. When heaven invaded earth, when the Israelites created this physical space where they were going to meet and worship, and we hear things in there, the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, and some of you are familiar with those concepts, but if you're not, they were structures that were built in the desert where the congregation could come to worship God. And the book of Exodus finishes not with the structure, but with the very presence of God uh, seen within the context of a cloud and at night within a fire-consuming cloud that rested over the tabernacle. You see, the conclusion for the story is in the presence of God. Exodus is a story of how God has moved people from slavery to living in His presence when He Himself brought heaven and earth together in the desert. That is where the journey goes. And this morning, the big idea that I wanna talk to us about is this, that the presence of God changes everything. The presence of God changes everything. And so in Exodus, we see the story of Israel moving from slavery to being present in the very midst of the glory and the presence of God. And I wanna say this for us. I don't wanna leave this in ancient times this morning. I wanna say that us in our Christian walk, an encounter with the presence of God changes everything. An encounter with the presence of God changes everything. If we go to the New Testament story, let me tell you about some characters that had an encounter with the presence of God and what it changed for them. We read about a man by the name of Stephen in Acts 6 and 7. And Stephen, uh, God had just invaded his life and was doing good things. And Stephen gets arrested and gets drawn before like this court of law and he starts just preaching about Jesus. And they don't like what he's saying, but he just keeps telling them the story anyway. And it says at one point, they get really mad with him that they block their ears and start yelling. Like, I mean, this guy's really sending them insane. And so Stephen is dragged out of the city and he's stoned. Listen to what happens to Stephen as he's having rocks thrown at him in an attempt and finally he is killed in that moment. The Scripture says this about Stephen. It says, While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and he cried out, Lord, wipe them out. No, he doesn't say that. He says this, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. What compels somebody to be sitting in a pit surrounded by accusers and people that hate him so much that they're hurling rocks at him to look up at them and to pray a prayer for those people? It's just like when Jesus is hanging on the cross and he looks down on the ones that are put in there and he says, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. What compels somebody so much that in the moment of receiving such hate to respond in such love? What was it that led a whole bunch of really kind of practical guys that became the disciples of Jesus to end up giving their life in service to Jesus? Christian history tells us that most of the disciples lost their life in violent circumstances because they wouldn't back down from the message that Jesus is God and that Jesus has risen from the dead and they lost their life. because What changes that? 
They all had an encounter with the risen Jesus. They had an encounter with the presence of God. A little bit later in the book of Acts, we come across a man that becomes fairly famous in the biblical story, a man by the name of Paul. And Paul one day is preaching about Jesus and it says this in Acts 16, the crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. And after they'd been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. And when he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in stocks. Beaten, stripped in the inner cell of the jail with stocks on their feet. And this is what the scripture tells us about Paul. After midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the others were listening to them. What, what causes us to experience such angst, pain and violence in life and respond in prayer and praise? The presence of God does. The Gospel of Luke tells a story of a man named Zacchaeus. It says that he was a chief tax collector and he was wealthy. And when Jesus reached the spot where Zacchaeus was, Zacchaeus, a little fella, had climbed a tree so he'd get noticed. And so Jesus walking through Zacchaeus' town, he's up the tree. And it says in verse five of Luke chapter 19, that when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up in the tree and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. What do we know about Zacchaeus? He was a tax collector, so he was hated by the people. The Bible tells us that he was wealthy because he'd spent his whole life building up an inheritance of his own. He had a lot of money. He probably had one of the best houses in town. He'd done really well out of life. Listen to what an encounter with Jesus and the presence of Jesus does to Zacchaeus. He says this, Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I'll pay four times back the amount. And this guy probably spent 30 years of his life building up his own resources and his wealth and his own kingdom. And in 12 hours, in an encounter with Jesus, he gives half of it away and more. You see, if you're struggling through the Christian life, I just want to suggest today that the thing that can change everything for you is having an encounter with the living Christ, having an encounter with the presence of God. We go back to the Moses, uh, to the Exodus story. The presence of God became everything for Moses. Listen to what Moses says. Moses said to the Lord, you have been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name and have found favour with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your way so that I may know you and continue to find favour with you. Remember that this nation is your people. In other words, Moses as the leader is in the desert and he's crying out to God and he's saying, God, I really need your help. I really need your help. I I need you to teach me. I need you to instruct me. I need you to guide me. I I need people to believe that, that you're real. And this is what God says. The Lord replied, my presence will go with you. My presence will go with you and I'll give you rest. And then Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, don't send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? See, Moses recognised for the people of Israel, it wasn't their strength and their size that set them apart. Israel was a nothing nation in in its size. It, It was tiny compared to the nations and the superpowers around them. 
Their renown wasn't going to come through their strength and their military might and their size. They were, they were people that didn't even have their own homeland at this point. They were a landless people. And Moses recognises that the thing that's going to set them apart isn't their strength or their smarts. Moses recognises that the thing that isn't going to set them apart is that they get to tell the story better than anybody else. You know what the thing that's going to set you apart is not that you're able to articulate the story of Jesus better than anybody else or you're going to answer every tricky question that comes your way. Man, if people are just looking to trip you up, there's questions I can't answer. Like, oh, you're going to have to leave that one to someone much smarter than I am. Yeah, Moses realised it wasn't in their intellect, it wasn't in their strength, it wasn't in their size that set them apart. It was when people looked in on them and saw the presence of God at work within them. And as it was for Moses, so it will be for us because the presence of God brings healing. The presence of God allows people to love their enemies. The presence of God brings patience into people's life. The presence of God allows you to experience peace in the most severest trial. The presence of God allows like Zacchaeus for an unprecedented generosity beyond anything that makes sense. The presence of God is the thing that transforms us just living the Christian life according to the rules that we've been told to live it by to living the Christian life in relationship with the creator of the universe on a grand adventure, seeing your life transformed and people's lives around you transformed. We have to have a hunger for the presence of God. But you see, if the journey of Exodus was from slavery to presence, what happened in between? Now we've unpacked a lot of this, but I wanna suggest this morning that there's four things or four places. I'm sure there's a lot more, but I wanna talk to four this morning, places where our faith gets derailed? What's the thing that stops us from experiencing the presence of God and experiencing the relationship that God's always intended for us to experience? And the first thing I wanna say is this, obstacles. Moses leads his people out of Israel. The Pharaoh has finally said, go, get out of here. I cannot put up with this anymore. Get out of here. But then it says that Pharaoh's heart is hardened and he pursues them where? To the, to the edge of the sea where they're now camped. And this nation of slaves is looking back over their shoulder and they see the dust in the distance of Pharaoh and his chariots coming over the hills and this fear starts to rise up within their heart. And we've looked at this in previous weeks, but what do they say? Moses, why did you drag us out in the desert to die? You just want us to get buried out here instead of living the life we were living back there. And they start saying, Moses, we should just go back to Egypt. Like the, the life of slaves is the life we wanna live. And I wonder if for some of us in our faith, we started really strong. We saw God do some miraculous stuff. We saw God do some things and we, we couldn't explain it away with logic or it was just, there was a sense that God was in our story and we started to experience it and know it just like the Israelites did. After a while, they couldn't logically explain all the things that were going on that led to the Pharaoh releasing them from slavery. And as they walked out into the desert, they were kind of filled with this sense of faith of what God was doing in them. But then they came up against their first obstacle. And instead of leaning into the story that they knew and the power of God that had led them to this point, they started to question and reason and look at everything through a logical lens. I wonder if the thing that's derailed many of us from actually experiencing the fullness of faith that God has intended for us is that we've had some obstacles come across our path that have either, either stopped our momentum or made us wanna step back into the life that we once had. Maybe it was disappointment. Maybe you just got disappointed in God. 
Maybe something happened in your life or something happened in your family or you grieved over somebody whose life was taken too soon or you saw somebody that just lived a faultless, beautiful life get stricken down by the most severest of disease and you just looked at it and you just had that sense of injustice rise up in your spirit and you couldn't make sense of how a loving God could be part of that. And so the first obstacle that came across your path, you just stopped pursuing the things of God and you just decided to revert back to the life that you had. Maybe it wasn't disappointment with God. Maybe the first obstacle you came across was disappointment with somebody else. I mean, just hang around with us for a little while and someone will let you down. Hang out with me for a little while and I'll probably let you down as well. You know what? If we put our faith in people, we're going to get disappointed. We're just going to get disappointed. I, I, I know a lot of you and I know all of you do your best to be great people. But you know what? Some days on a tired day, a bad day, a day where we didn't get enough sleep, the day where the kids are being annoying, a day when the money's kind of tight, we just don't have a good day and we say something we shouldn't say or we don't follow up someone that we should have followed up or we don't care for someone the way we shouldn't care for somebody. And we've all felt the pain of that, haven't we? Of being let down by somebody else. Self-awareness check, you've all let somebody else down. So it's all right, you're just as bad as the person next to you. But for some of us, our experience with somebody else has been the thing that's derailed our faith. Because we've looked at someone else and said, well, if they're a representative of the God that they serve, they haven't done a very good job, I'm out. And maybe that was the obstacle that actually stopped you pressing into the things that God wanted for you, disappointment with others. Maybe there was a tragedy that you just experienced that you had no one else to blame and so you blame God. Maybe the journey you were on has led you to places that just don't make sense. You can't understand why God wouldn't act in a way that He has. And I reckon for a lot of people, those obstacles that come into all of our stories at some point can be one of the greatest things that derail our faith and derail our momentum and, and cause us to want to step back into the life where we're in control and whatever that looks like. I just wonder for you this morning whether there's some of us here that we stopped pressing on into the things of God because we got disappointed. Don't give up before the miracle comes. Don't before, give up before God's got a chance to show you what happens when you keep trusting Him. And the second place that our faith can get derailed that we see in the story of Exodus is a bit of a funny one. But what happens to the Israelites is God finally parts the waters they walk through into the desert. The desert's not, a, desert's not exactly the promised land. Like you've been living in slavery, God told you he's going to take you to a promised land, but instead of getting to the promised land, where do you end up? In the desert. A desert's a cool place to visit, to take some photos. It's not a great place to live and it's not a great place to go for a long-term holiday. And it says that the Israelites were in the desert for 40 years. Not a great place to be. But in the desert, one of the things that they had to learn to do was to trust God. Uh, Jason spoke about this a few weeks ago. One of the first things they had to trust God for was just their very life, the provision of food and water to sustain them. And anyway, when you get into those places where you have to trust God, one of the things that it really confronts us with is whether we're willing to actually lay down control and actually hand control to Him. And at some point in all of our Christian journeys, one of the questions that we're going to be confronted with is are we willing to surrender control? And for some of you, one of the greatest obstacles that you will face is this question of control. Because there's going to come a point where God's going to say, I want you to just give everything to me and trust me with it. 
The Israelites had to just wake up every morning and go, we're just gonna trust that God is good to His Word again today. We're dying out here through lack of food and lack of water. Now, I, I don't wanna stereotype this, but I reckon there's a whole bunch of blokes here that really struggle with this issue. Because we wanna follow Jesus, but we wanna tell Him how to do His job. Or we wanna push back and tell Him maybe how we could do it a little bit better than the way He's suggesting we do it. Or maybe there's another way of looking at this that he hasn't thought of. And at some point, one of the things that we're all confronted with is to whether we're actually willing to surrender everything to Jesus. And for some of us, this question of control can be the very thing that actually holds us back in actually experiencing all that God wants for us. Because we constantly say, Jesus, some of what I've got is yours, but I just don't wanna trust that you will actually look after the rest. And so I'll just let a little bit of myself you know, you know this in a human term. You know, a relationship's life when you just give it a little bit of yourself. I mean, in our marriage relationship, if all Chrissy gets is a little bit of who I am, and the rest I just want to make sure she doesn't get to see or I get to keep control of, and lead to a great relationship. And in a relationship with God, there is a question at some point, which is, are you willing to lay it all down and surrender and bow the knee and let me take control? And when we do that we start to experience something that we can't experience while we're still trying to hang onto the steering wheel. Because God will take you places you never expected. You'll probably walk through some things that you'd never write into your own story, but you'll find God in the midst of it and you'll be amazed at the journey you go on. So for some of us, it's the first obstacle. It's the first moment of disappointment that derails our faith journey. For others, it's that question of control. For some of us, I wonder if the thing that stops us moving forward to experiencing the fullness of what God has for us is where we were last week. It's actually the law. Like we've been taught Christian faith or we've been taught Christian faith more as a religion that's a set of things that you have to live up to and a set of rules that you must abide by and a set of things that God's just hovering over your shoulder waiting for you to stuff it up so He can belt you with His rod and get you back in line. And so you spent your whole life faithfully following God faithfully following Jesus. But there's never been a relationship there. You've just constantly lived it like you need to just get all the things right. And so I wonder if for some of us, we get to Mount Sinai as the Israelites do and we discover God and all the things that He invites us to do. As I said last week, the law is about freedom and flourishing. But for some of us, actually just become a restrictive experience of who God is. And so I wonder if for some of us, the point where we don't get beyond is the law. And we never experience the fullness of what God is because we never see a smile on His face. We always experience Him as the God that wants to get at us or just wants us to muck stuff up. And so we spend our whole life beating ourselves up because we fall short of the mark and, and just almost cowering before God. That's not how God wants you to experience Him. That's not what happens when you encounter the presence of God. What happens when you encounter the presence of God is you jump out of the tree, you go, you open the safe and you start handing stuff out and saying, I'm gonna give half of what I have to the poor. I'm gonna, anyone I've ripped off. That's, and Jesus isn't in the background with a stick carrying at Zacchaeus. I reckon Jesus is sitting at the table laughing while he enjoys some of the food that's been spread out. See, this is what happens when we experience the presence of God. Suddenly doing what God wants of us doesn't feel like a chore. It just feels like the best thing to do. But some of us are still just trying to measure up to the mark. And so we never get to the point where we experience all of who God is because 
We're not living the relationship, we're living the rule book. Number four, final obstacle. The back half of Exodus starts to talk about what it is to build what we see in Exodus 40, the tent of meeting in the tabernacle, these structures that God gives them very strict instructions for to build in the desert. God says, I wanna give you some spaces to build. It's gonna be a representative place. It's a place where you come to worship me. It's a place where my presence is gonna reside. And so there's all these very interesting, if you're a tradie, maybe you'll be more interested in the strict instructions that God gives about how this place was to be built and what's to happen there and what items would be placed in there. And Anyway, we talk about the building in the desert. And here's the thing, if they build the tabernacle and they build the tent of meeting and that's all it becomes, it becomes a great monument, but it doesn't actually become a place where we experience the presence of God. You see, the thing that made the tent of meeting and the tabernacle what it was, was in Exodus 40, when the presence of God, the glory of God, the cloud descends on this physical structure that they had built. I actually wonder if some of us get to the building. You know, we get past the obstacle, we get past the control, we get past the law, we get to the building. And we might have been sitting in a church building all of our lives, going through the routine. And we do it because we were taught to do it or we did it because it's what our parents did and we did it because we believe in it and we know it's good, but we sit here every week, but we've never actually had an encounter with Jesus. I, I, I want us to hear this, not just for this moment, but for our future as a church. Because you know, and if you come on Tuesday night, you know part of the dialogue at the moment is that we wanna to look to our future where we believe as a church, Gateway Ormo here in this community will one day build a permanent presence, a permanent home, a home of bricks and mortar, physical presence in this community. But I've sat in many physical church buildings that have no life in them. And so we're not gonna spend our whole time talking about the bricks and the mortar. Because what we discover in the book of Exodus, that is if God turns up to a temporary tent in the desert, there's no place that you would rather be. And so we're not gonna worry about that. Even though we're gonna keep talking about it, working towards it, strategizing for it, giving towards it, because it is part of our future. But you know what we're gonna keep doing? We're gonna keep turning up here week after week, seeking the presence of God. Because I guarantee you wouldn't care if the roof fell off this place, if every time you stepped into it, there was a sense of God at work in your life, in people's lives, if you were seeing freedom and healing and salvation and people getting set free and families restored. We would sit in that oval down the back in the pouring rain, if that's what was the experience we had. And some of us just get caught up in the structures of the church. But we've never experienced the presence of God in our own life. And so church, we're gonna move towards a future one day where somewhere, I I love driving around here going, I know where it'll be one day, God, but I'm sure one day we'll be sitting somewhere here. Church will be built for the generations to come. But I wanna build a place of bricks and mortar that's not filled with something much richer than that. Because bricks and mortar crumble and fall. One day they became relics and ruins. But the presence of God has stood from age to age. He's the ancient of days. He was there when His Word spoke creation into being. It says when we gather together, He is here in our midst. I wanna encourage us today, church. That as the Israelites moved from slavery, guess where God took them? To the place where heaven and earth met. There's some really interesting imagery that leans into the New Testament at this point. 
If you go to the, there's four accounts of the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, they're all written from slightly different perspectives. They've all probably got a grander idea that drives some of the narrative. Like Matthew really wants to make sure we understand that the story of Jesus is grounded in the Old Testament text. And Mark just wants to give us a snapshot. And he, there's some symmetry in the Gospel of Mark that's different than Matthew. And they all tell the truth of the story of Jesus, just the way four of us writing about today would write it a little bit differently. But the fourth of those Gospels is probably the most different, the Gospel of John. And John starts his Gospel, whereas everyone else talks about the practical realities of how Jesus was born and where He was born and what happened and who His you know, family line was. John tells this really weird story. He says this, he says, In the beginning was the Word. And the word, word in the Greek is logos. In the beginning was the logos. The beginning was the Word. He's talking about Jesus, a, a weird thing to place. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God. In other words, Jesus was there in the beginning, presence with God. And then He says, and the Word was God. This, John's essentially saying this Jesus that I'm about to tell you about, He was there in the very beginning. He was there present with God actually. This Jesus I'm gonna tell you about, He is God. And then he goes on a little bit later in John chapter one, verse four. He says this, or verse 14, verse 14, I lie. The Word became flesh and He made His dwelling amongst us. Now, when you think about that word dwelling for a minute, you know what that word dwelling actually means? Literally this verse rendered says this, the Word became flesh and He tabernacled amongst us. He tabernacled amongst us. You see, in the Old Testament, the people of Israelite, the people of Israel found themselves in the desert and they built this structure called the tabernacle and God's presence filled it. It literally means God pitched His tent amongst us. That's what it means to tabernacle. He pitched His tent amongst us. He came on church camp, He found the prime land and He put His tent there. In other words, He, he stepped out of the glory of heaven into our reality. Here's the truth of what Jesus has done, right? He hasn't expected us to go and find Him in weird places. He stepped out of the glory of heaven and brought heaven and earth together. That's it. together, together. That's just back to my Dubbo enunciation there, together. Put heaven and earth together. And that's what God does. He invades the life of earth with the life of heaven. And when the life of heaven and the life of earth come together, everything changes. You know what God did in Jesus? He brought heaven and earth together. You know what the Bible tells us in Revelation? John says, I looked and there was the glory of heaven. What? There was a new heaven and a new earth because God's dwelling was now amongst us. See, God's desire for you isn't that you live a life of adhering to all the rules. It isn't that you live a life where you just give Him a little sniff of control. It's a life where you experience in the fullness of all fullness, the presence of God in every moment of your life, where the ministry of heaven becomes a reality for you on earth. And you know what happens when that happens? You don't care what circumstances you find yourself in because you find yourself living in a bigger narrative than the one that you could write for yourself. And so church, we're gonna continue to pursue the presence of God. And I guarantee when we experience the presence of God and when we see people have for the very first time that encounter with the living, risen Christ, the One who brings heaven to earth, 
everything changes. Whatever it is that stops you taking that next step, maybe I just want to encourage you to confront it today. Just come to a place and say, okay, Jesus, here I am. Whatever it looks like, whatever it means, whatever changes I need to make, whatever it's going to take, I just want to live in your presence. I want to experience your hope and your healing and your freedom and your joy and your peace. And I don't care where you lead me as long as you're with me, as Moses said, as long as your presence is with me. We don't care where the journey goes, but God, may I know you in every moment, in every day. May I know your voice. May I know your guidance. May I know your promptings. May I know your wisdom. May I know your presence. Can we stand this morning, church? I don't feel like there's a response for us today that is about coming out and doing anything. I just reckon there's a response where you stand, where you just want to say, Jesus, right now I want to experience your presence. You are present with us. Make me very aware of your presence in this place. Speak into the things in my life that you want to talk into. Fill me with your joy. Fill me with your peace. Lord God, I want to thank you that you've always been the one that's taken the initiative. That just like for the people of Israel, you want to lead those of us here that are currently now slaves to sin. You want to lead us to a brand new freedom in you where we get to sit and enjoy, be changed, be transformed by your very presence. May your presence be felt in a tangible sense here today, Jesus. You are in the room with us. You have pitched your tent with us. You have tabernacled amongst us. May we know that in its fullness in this space this morning, I pray. We hope you've been blessed by this message. We are a growing family and everybody who walks through our doors is welcome. If you'd like to connect with us, please head to gatewaybaptist.com.au to find out more.